Hello and welcome to The Recommended Dose, a podcast encouraging a more questioning approach to healthcare. Today it's our great privilege to feature Dr Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the British Medical Journal, one of the oldest and most influential journals in the world, which has a reputation for upsetting vested interests pushing, for example, for much greater transparency about the ties between doctors and drug companies, or as Fiona says, stirring up hornet's nests. And as we'll hear, while she leads one of the top doctor's journals on the planet, owned by the British Medical Association, or BMA, she's actually not that keen on visiting doctors herself, unless it's really necessary. I think I'm one of those people who'd rather not take pills if I don't have to. And rather not see doctors if I don't have to. So that, that's, you know, my bias. Whether you're a hardened researcher, a hard-working student or health professional, someone running a hospital or health system, and especially if you don't work within the world of medicine, I have no doubt you'll love listening to the BMJ's editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, and hear her stirring up a few more hornet's nests. Well, thanks, Ray. I do see it as a privilege. The BMJ or any major journal has the huge advantage or or benefit of of dealing with wonderfully interesting issues, uh, fantastically talented and um, thoughtful people, uh, both within the journal itself and, of course, through authors and peer reviewers and advisors around the world, yourself included, um, working with great groups like Cochrane and um, other international groups around the world. So I do think it's, it's a huge privilege. And to be sort of in charge of the ship, if you like, for the last 12 years and to know that I'll pass it on to someone talented and wonderful in a few years' time is, is a good feeling. The BMJ or the British Medical Journals, owned by the British Medical Association, a doctor's group in Britain or the doctor's group in Britain, it, it, it's not some large global corporation. And, and there are explicit rules, I think, saying that you have editorial freedom. D- do you have editorial freedom? I do, Ray. I have editorial freedom. Um, the BMA is a very good owner of the journal. They've understood, I think, for a long time that the the best interests of everyone are served if the journal um, editor and team are allowed to do their job, um, which means to uh, cover international issues, publish the best research we can find, um, be as transparent and open as we can, and to stir a few hornet's nests. That's inevitably part of the job. And so we will upset people. And um, in my entire experience as editor for the last 12 years, I've only come across a couple of occasions where the BMA um, has uh, expressed concern, but it's always been on the basis that they let me know and I listen to their concerns and then um, we, 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 we act as we f- see fit. Is it fair to say that the BMJ is, is in some way the, the, the voice, let's say, of the British medical establishment? Well, um, I, I think in some ways we're a bit anti-establishment and, and I think that's, that's where we're comfortable being. I mean, we're, we're sort of within but also... I mean, people listening to this might think that's absurd. You know, we're we're uh, you know 170 years old and absolutely part of the establishment, but we certainly don't see ourselves as the voice of the BMA. And to some extent, we're not we're 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 not really the voice of doctors as such. I think our main aim is to be the voice of medicine and healthcare, uh, healthcare in particular. So. Um, it, there are occasions where the best interests of public and the patients are not in line with the best interests of doctors as such. And I think that's that's where where sometimes people might think we would speak for doctors when, in fact, I think we speak for 
hopefully, patients and the public. Let's talk about some of those hornets' nests that that, that you like to stir up. The, the, the BMJ has, um, unlike other journals, has explicitly said that it wants to campaign, and indeed the BMJ has you know, a whole number of campaigns um, that, that you've been engaged in, the Too Much Medicine campaign, campaigns on statins, the cholesterol drugs, campaigns to engage more patients. Well, first of all, let me ask you, is, is it the role of medical journals to campaign? A lot of people listening would think that medical journals are there to, to uh, publish the results of, of, of peer-reviewed science. What, what on earth are you doing campaigning? Well, I think yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, and um, uh, there are various ways in which I can approach it. Just to say from from the outset, of certainly the two major journals in the UK, so that's the Lancet and the BMJ. Um, the Lancet's slightly older than the BMJ. Um, both have at times, and the Lancet, when it was founded, had a campaigning stance, and. Um, Wackley, the the founder of the Lancet, you know, very much saw himself as as, as against the medical establishment, challenging, uh, you know, vested interests and and bad doings. Uh, the BMJ began much more as a kind of membership provincial, the provincial medical and surgical journal, uh, in 1840. But um, it, at various times in its history, it has been campaigning. So it's it's most, um, I suppose. Um, famous or, or revered editor Ernest Hart uh, in Victorian times took on various campaigns. One in particular gets mentioned, which was against baby farming, where, where illegitimate children were farmed out to families um, and the families themselves or the, 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 the foster families would either kill them or leave them out in the cold or let them starve and die. And it was a kind of money-making thing. And uh, Ernest Hart put an advertisement in the in the national papers to try to find such foster parents and then wrote about it in the BMJ. And I think that, as well as other political things um, going on at the time, led to a change in the law. So that's something that we were able to refer back to um, when we thought we would take a more campaigning stance. Uh, Stephen Locke, my predecessor but one, had a sort of campaigning uh, energy about him around improving peer review and and looking into peer review. And then Richard Smith, uh, my predecessor, who you know, Ray, um, was was did, took on all sorts of things, but didn't necessarily call them campaigns. And one of them was um, the conflicts of interest problem. He he took a lot of sort of strides forward in that, and also uh, the question about too much medicine, which he was. The, the sort of editor when the BMJ began to think about you know medicalization with with your input Ray you were very much part of that uh, development in the journal and and I think what what I've done or what the team has done um, with me has been to formalize or to pick up on some of those things and I mean specifically with the too much medicine thing the the little mini change we made was we took the question mark at the end of the phrase away so that it wasn't too much medicine question mark but is now too much medicine and I think that's um you know, when you begin to say, yes, we've got a real problem here, we know that, let's, 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 let's try to shine a more of a light on it and begin to look at solutions. You're listening to The Recommended Dose, today with Dr Fiona Godley, the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, talking there about the BMJ's campaign to address the problem of too much medicine. 
a campaign I've helped work on over the years during my occasional writing for the journal. Another of the BMJ's high-profile campaigns has been to push for open data, to try and stop drug companies, for example, burying evidence that's unfavourable to their products. The campaign has included many articles in the BMJ on companies trying to exaggerate benefits or play down side effects about a bunch of drugs, including some antidepressants, diabetes drugs and antiarthritis drugs. The Open Data campaign is an example of a move towards much greater transparency about evidence within healthcare, to allow all of us to get much closer to the truth about how well treatments work and what their harms might be so that we can stop being misled so often. One of the most powerful examples is Tamiflu, the anti-flu drug that was stockpiled around the world to fight the flu pandemic a few years back. Fiona Godley explains how the BMJ worked closely with researchers from the world of Cochrane to try to uncover the truth about Tamiflu, ultimately finding the world had likely wasted billions of dollars. So I think the Tamiflu saga, it has become kind of iconic. And for me, it was an incredibly radicalising episode because as it began with a simple um, request, really, to check on the evidence for whether this drug Tamiflu should be bought by governments around the world, specifically in the UK, but obviously it would have implications internationally. And the Cochrane Group were originally just going to update their review and say their previous finding, which was that it was effective in preventing people getting sicker with influenza and having to go to hospital. Um, They thought they'd just update this and confirm it. Um, But they were alerted to the fact that the data on which that conclusion had been based were very poor in that they were 10 trials, only two had ever been published in full in journals, the other eight just abstracts at meetings. All 10 of those trials funded and performed by the manufacturer of the drug Roche Uh, So the Cochrane group quite rightly said we need to get the data and they wrote to the authors who said they didn't have the data, they wrote to the manufacturer who said they couldn't have the data and then they came to the BMJ and we worked together over a period of five years to get the data Um, and when the data were finally released, in the end, after huge amounts of resistance, suddenly released as if with no problem at all on on a list, on a a pile of uh, CD-ROMs, you know, all of the fuss about patient confidentiality suddenly um, swept aside and the Cochrane Group reviewed the data and it's all now in the public public domain because the Cochrane Group refused to do this under wraps of confidentiality, quite rightly. And their analysis really found that the drug doesn't really do very much, um, maybe similar to paracetamol in terms of symptom control, and has undisclosed harms. So the the reason it's radicalising, the reason it's important is huge amounts of public money were spent. Um, the uh, extraordinary situation in which data which have huge public health significance uh, in terms of not only money spent but patients being treated was not available for scrutiny and that most of the trials that they then uncovered, I mean hundreds of, I don't want to say the number, I think I'm going to say 160 but I may have got that wrong, trials instead of the 10 that were you know, the basis of the original conclusion um, had been sort of hidden from view. So, I mean, the whole thing is, is, is laughable if it wasn't so serious. The whole move to an evidence-based approach to medicine has meant that we focus now on, on evidence when we make decisions. But is it the case that the, the Tamiflu example shows, shows us just how distorted 
that evidence can be and how misleading it might be. Um, and, and how on earth do we ever get to the truth about how well uh, drugs and other medical treatments work when there's so much industry engagement in, in gener- generating that evidence? Well, I, I mean, that's certainly my view, um, Ray. Uh, there are other people who, who you know, well, I mean, the, the other view is that we absolutely need to collaborate with industry to develop new drugs. Um, I, I think... Uh, we do want industry to develop new drugs and we do want them to, to do that in, in, in conjunction with patients and doctors um, and researchers, obviously, because that, that's necessary. Um, my concern, and I'm not alone in this, is, is the dominance of uh, the drug industry as a funder and um, doer of of um, research beyond beyond the initial kind of development stage of the drug. So this is the evaluation of the drug. And, and I you know, at at heart think that industry doesn't really have a legitimate role in that evaluation. We shouldn't have, um, uh, you know, the the people with such a huge vested interest in the outcome um, involved so closely as they are. Now, the difficulty then people say, well, well, how will these trials, how will these drugs be evaluated? Well, that's, that's the solution we've got to find. I think we've got to accept the fact that the current system is delivering distorted information. Um, I, I need to say here that it's not just industry. Academia is also, um, you know, has a lot of distorting influences, and we could talk about those. But if we're specifically talking about the industry distortion, I think it's real. Um, study after study finds it. People say, oh, that's historical. We've just published an article in the BMJ this year which finds exactly the same thing that that principal investigators uh, with links to industry um, publish studies that are uh, are, are largely favourable to the the product. Um, So, you know, it's not not something that's gone away. Uh, There there have been improvements. We've got trial registration. Industry is much better than academia, it turns out, in terms of getting their trials registered and publishing the results quickly. But they, there, there are so many ways in which, um, and I was just talking by email to John Oanides in Stanford about this, there's so many ways in which the study design and the, the way it's reported um, can uh, distort the result that I, I think, you know, in an ideal world, and it's a world we, we would like to be moving towards, we, would, we wouldn't have this, this, um, this irreducible conflict of interest in the research that, that is affecting people's health. So what you're saying is that you would like to see independent evaluation of of drugs and presumably other therapies as well that that would be a major change in the way things are done at the moment would it not it would be a major change and uh, I mean there are models uh, in Italy um, Silvio Garattini at the uh, Mario Negri Institute and his colleagues there managed to get a law passed where they now uh, have the I think it's, I'm going to say, 5% of of industry marketing spend is put into a pot, a central pot, which is managed by independent advisory group. And um, that that money is put towards independent studies, head-to-head comparisons, um, especially neglected drugs or neglected areas. So there are models, and and I think people who, who dream of a better future say, well, why couldn't we have a central pot into which industry, if they want to market their drugs or license them, would put their um, their uh, a proportion of their uh, profits, and that money would be used to to evaluate their drugs in an independent and transparent way. Are we hearing the beginnings of another BMJ campaign here? Is there a campaign brewing where the BMJ 
will take a lead and, and essentially call for a, a rewriting of the relationship between the health professions and the pharmaceutical and other medical industries? Well, I, I, think, I think that is probably where we're heading. I just, just, just something to say about the evidence base before we get onto that. We have stopped publishing a while ago uh, research pub, uh, funded by the tobacco industry. Um, that seemed a slightly no-brainer move. So that was, you know, we, didn't, we did get pushed back on that even so, but we, we made that, that uh, decision. The food industry is another one. I think, you know, we've got a lot of evidence that the food industry uh, is, it behaves in ways that are similar to tobacco in, in terms of trying to distort the evidence base and, and hijacking the uh, research agenda. And the drug industry, the difficulty there is, is you know, we need those drugs and um, they're the big player in town and how would we do it without them? So uh, I think what, what, I, what, I, what we've tried to do with the BMJ campaigns is always walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So rather than simply say this is what's got to happen, we've tried to think, well, what can we do to advance that and also to, to change the way we do things? So with the open data campaign, we've made changes to our own policies to say we won't look at uh, clinical trials unless they've been registered, obviously, but also unless the trialists are willing to share their data. Um, and we're thinking to move towards a further step, which would be to say we want the trialists to put a deadline um, when they will actually make the data available. Uh, so we're actually kind of upping the ante on that. If it came to to something about independent research, you know, the obvious step for us would be to say we're not going to publish any... Uh, she says this with a bit of a pause. We're not going to publish any um, trials funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, I think that's probably would be the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, whether you whether that? we'll go that you... way is, is obviously a huge problem because those are the studies that are, are, are most influential. Any journal wants to get large uh, drug trials. Um, the BMJ doesn't publish very many at the moment. That might make it an easier decision for us. Um, so that, you know, that's where I think we're on the cusp of something and, and it just depends on how far we feel able to go. One one obvious uh, response, if you do uh, decide to go down such a route and start campaigning for much greater independence between uh, the health professions, doctors and, and industry, people will immediately point to your uh, sources of revenue uh, uh, that come from drug advertising. One, one presumes that, that, that pharmaceutical advertising is only a small proportion of the BMJ's total revenue. Um, have you considered simply letting that go? Um, it's a it's it's an important point. We I don't think we could let it go. Um, I think um, the 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 revenues of the BMJ, like any um, probably most journals, depend on a, a mix of things. Um, we get subscriptions from libraries and individuals. We get open access fees because we're an open access journal. And we get um, advertising revenue, a combination of drug advertising and job classified advertising. Um, and actually, the advertising side is quite a substantial part of our income. Um, we, I, I, uh, we, I, we, so, so various options um, offer themselves. One would be to, yes, not have drug advertising um, and to charge our subscribers more. Another would be to, um, which is what we do, to make sure we have extremely clear and absolute barriers between the selling of the advertising, um, our sales teams and the editorial teams. So there's no connection at all. We don't discuss 
copy or coverage. Uh, they don't discuss who they're getting advertising from. We have a very strong support from our commercial uh, our chief exec, for example, um, if advertisers were to stop advertising with us because of something we published, uh, that's just understood to be the cost of doing business. We wouldn't ever, I have never been put under pressure on that score. As of this year, this month, we're going to publish our revenues from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, that will be uh, sponsorship for some things and our advertising revenues. Um, wow. And and we're we're going to be the first journal to do this. Plus, Medicine does it because it's a, a U.S. charity and is obliged to publish its revenues, which of course is good. Um, so I think I think we're trying to do our very best to be transparent about this and to also make sure that the safeguards are in place to prevent editorial influence. You're listening to a podcast called The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan. Today, talking with Dr. Fiona Godley, editor-in-chief of the globally influential British Medical Journal, on how BMJ is campaigning to get much greater independence between doctors and drug companies and other vested interests, and how the journal is trying to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. As an example, the BMJ recently introduced new restrictions on which researchers can write educational content, essentially banning doctors who accept money from drug or device makers when that money is relevant to what's being written about. And it's put some noses out of joint. Another thing the BMJ has done after the last two or three years is we have instigated, instituted a um, policy whereby for our clinical updates that go to you know, practising doctors, we will not have those written by anyone with... Um, financial relationships that that impact on the topic that they are covering. Uh, so this is really difficult to do. The New England Journal tried to do it back in the 2000s and then they abandoned it when the new editor came on board because he said it was not uh, working. In fact, the old editor said it was working fine. Um, but the new editor, Jeff Drazen, felt that it was going to make it difficult for them to get really good um, clinical reviews into the journal. We've decided that a really good clinical review is defined as one that's written by someone who is independent. And as far as possible, that's what we're trying to achieve. It's difficult because uh, in some areas of medicine, finding independent people is very hard. It's also difficult because it takes more time. And it's difficult because we piss people off and they get upset, understandably, because we seem to be impugning their integrity, which we're not doing. But we're saying for this particular job, writing a, an educational article in the BMJ, we need someone who has the following uh, um, characteristics, one of which is that they don't have a financial interest in the treatments they're recommending mm. or even in mm. the treatments they're critiquing. I mean, it's got to be the, the whole sphere. Mm. Uh, really feel... hard because it also includes private income. You see, if you're an orthopaedic surgeon yeah. and you, you know, do, you do a specific knee implant or an arthroscopy or, you know, and that's how you make a big proportion of your income, that's, that's, a, that's a conflict. So with all this stirring up of hornet's nests, does the responsibility of running this major journal give Fiona Godley energy or does it weigh her down? Honestly, I'd have to say it varies. Um, you know, day to day. The day probably day to day. Um, I, I worked out the other day that there are usually th pretty much three things going on and I think it may be like a mother duck. You know, you can't count more than five so you only know you've got five ducklings. But I, I find that, that you know, it, sometimes when I'm weighed down I, I'm helped by thinking, well, these are the three things at the moment. 
and and then a month after that, the three things have either changed or, or you know, you're in a, a good phase in there. When I say things, I mean, you know, a legal, you know, challenge and a complaint from a, a whole specialty who feel they've been down, down, done down by, or um, you know, a call to retract something we've published. You know, those, those are the sort of big issues that sort of come across your desk and and. Uh, but then again, the other thing that I think is helpful is to realise that that's what the job is and and not to feel, you know, that it, without those things, what, what would what would be the purpose, you know? So I find that keeping resilient for, you know, in other ways, I mean, I can list how I do that if, if there's interest in that, but, you know, trying to maintain one's physical and emotional and spiritual resilience is, is very helpful for when, when, when those things hit. You raised that issue of resilience. Do you want to tell us, tell the listener a little bit about some of the ways in which you maintain that resilience? Yes, um, and I don't want to claim for a moment that I'm always <laughs> resilient. I mean, my husband will tell you the times I arrive home and just sort of lie on the floor weeping. Um, but uh, they're not too often, but they, they do happen. I know anyone will have, have those experiences. But, I mean, things like trying to keep physically active is, is hugely important. I cycle um uh, my, 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 my journey to work involves cycling across Cambridge and then a, a little bit of cycling in London. And then if I go to meetings in London, I cycle. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not taking enough exercise, so that, that's something that always I'm trying to do more of. Um, trying to get enough sleep. I, I meditate every morning. Um, that's been something, a long-standing thing. And I'd like to say it's not every morning, but, you know, that, that's the plan. Um, at times I do that thing of journaling where I'm on the train and I just write, you know, for for 15 minutes, keeping the pen on the paper, just keeping writing, just sort of not, not for posterity, but for, you know, just the act of getting uh, one's thoughts flowing. Um, I have a life coach (laughs) um, who I've had for 17 years. She and I started working together in 2000. Um, and we speak about once every month or two months by phone. It's been such a, a regular part of my professional life that we, we've gotten to a very good, um, you know, we know each other very well. She's amazingly effective and good, and I'm always recommending her to other people. Um, so that, that, I think, is hugely helpful because that's someone who's completely on your side and you can just bounce off thoughts, but they can also challenge you and say, you know, you know, why are you doing this and have you thought of that? Um, and I have a, a final thing, which I mustn't forget to mention. I have I have a fantastically supportive husband who who gave up the work he was doing when we started having kids. We have two kids, um, and he has done everything really. You know, not not just doing the occasional this and that, but but he runs he runs the family. And how how valuable or important has that been to your? career success and your ability to run this extraordinary journal um, so well as you do? If Zach was working in a, in a job that he'd wanted to continue in and was very financially rewarding, we might have come up with a different solution. But he was happy to give up work. He was um, in farming, um, dairy farming. And um, uh, so that seemed to work well as a, as, a, as a model for us. And I think the benefit has been we haven't had huge childcare costs or, or lots of having to employ people, and he's been at home um, all all the way through. Uh, the kids, I think, have benefited hugely from that. I think it's been very hard for him at times, um, being a being a being a dad at home. But um, you know, I think I think it's just the model that that's been how we've managed things. It's meant that when I go travelling, you know, there's not a lot of sort of worry about what's going on back home, and 
that that's been I mean I don't want to claim it's been perfect for I, for anyone we've obviously had our ups and downs but I think it's been a you know it, it's been it's been a fantastic support what's the source of this this interest in in really challenging and being iconoclastic and shaking things up I don't know Ray it's very hard to to to, to look at oneself in that way um I suppose, for whatever reason, if if I see something that seems wrong, and you know, I'm who am I to judge what's right and wrong? But you know, if one has to go with one's gut, and and also you surround yourself, I suppose, with people who who you can bounce ideas off, and and then you get courage and and, and confirm, yes, this doesn't sound right. Yes, this is actually wrong, uh, or this is the better way forward. Um, then. I feel, I suppose, I don't want to say duty-bound, but I suppose that is a slight sense, or, or at least energised by the prospect of being able to um, h- highlight injustice or highlight wrongdoing and to think about and, and encourage better ways forward. Um, I mean, my, my family background, I suppose, has, convin- has, has contributed a great deal to that, um, and I won't bore people with that, but, you know, wonderful parents who've, who've guided me in that way. Um, but and my education, but I think I think certainly since going into medicine, um, um, working at the BMJ, after doing a, a training in general medicine, I think you're suddenly exposed to so many issues and given um, exposure to so many thoughtful people, and uh, given the tools, if you like, to actually begin to make a difference to those things. So, I think it would be hard to not want to do that, given given this given the situation I'm in. I think. I think one of the people in your in in deep in uh, buried in your family tree somewhere is is a Dr. Joseph Lister, who um, may have been one of the pioneers of, of sterilisation, and, and and I wonder if well a is that true and b whether there's a there's a bit of a continuation here about you you, you wanting to clean things up. <laughs> So yes, it is true. Joseph Lister is a, a, a relative, an ancestor of my father's, and um, is was a Quaker and was a radical. Um, and I think there is an element of, of of that in our family, and I'm very proud of it. And uh, but I, I mean, I don't want it's not it's not sterilisation so much as um, shining a light. I think that's what we would like to I'd like to say. While we're on personal matters too, I mean, one of the things that happens to people of a certain age is that we're encouraged to be screened for certain cancers. And, and, and going back to the mention of, of too much medicine earlier and, and the BMJ support for um, trying to prevent overdiagnosis, one of the examples is, is the overdiagnosis that can occur through breast cancer screening. Is, is your decision-making about whether or not you undergo mammography, something you'd want to talk about here? Yes, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, it, it was a, a, I mean, I think, I think I'm one of those people who'd rather not take pills if I don't have to and rather not see doctors if I don't have to. So that, that's, you know, my bias. Um, I, and you're the editor of the BMJ. <laughs> says the editor of the BMJ. Um, on the other hand, you know, when, when one needs medical treatment and whether that be pills or, or surgery or whatever, you know, obviously, you, you know, I'm always incredibly grateful for that. And I've had fantastic experiences of that with my family and myself. Um, but, you know, obviously, if it's a, if it doesn't need to be um, done, then I'd much rather it wasn't. So when it comes to breast screening, um, I think that, 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 again, it was a sort of radicalising experience being the editor at the time when that was being discussed. The BMJ was being slightly accused of being anti-screening. We were publishing stuff that was questioning the information that women were being given. And so we uh, we tried to provide balance. We got other people to contribute. They, they ended up being even more 
convinced of the limitations of screening and, and the potential to do harm, uh, and the harm being, you know, worry, uh, worrying well women and um, false positives and leading to further tests and sometimes surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Um, so in the process of this, I became much better informed, I think, than I would have done if I'd just been the recipient of one of these leaflets. And uh, in particular, I was very struck by the idea that actually, if you end up having radiotherapy unnecessarily, that that can actually cause damage to your heart. So, you know, in terms of where, where, the, where the mortality line cut off um, in terms of benefit is, I think that's rather interesting. Clearly, if treatment improves and ability to detect you know, the, the, the troubling, the troublesome cancers from the less troublesome, then that would change one's decision. But I think at the moment, uh, for me, I, I didn't want to go down that route. And um, I have a, 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 I have um, relatives who've died of breast cancer in later life, um, not, not a, a, a genetic risk. So I think if you have a high risk, obviously that's a different thing again. I think think I'm right in saying Fiona that one of the things you've tried to do at the BMJ is 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 bring a more I don't know if it's fair to say a, a literary style to the writing to make the writing as accessible as possible I mean is is literature something that's important to you uh, it is important, Ray. I mean, I, yes, absolutely. And I do try and read. Um, I, I'm glad you think, uh, for coming from you as, as, a, as a great journalist, um, and, and we've relied on people like you to improve the journalism itself. So I'm very glad if that's the case. Um, as for reading, I have a train journey and I've just recently restarted trying to make sure I carry a book with me so that on the journey home when I'm sort of tired and can't do any more emails I, I don't just read the throwaway newspaper I read a, something decent and I've just finished uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale which is a very gruelling but brilliant read um, and is being televised at the moment and um, is something everyone should read if they can bear it especially in the, I have it, to I have to I have to ask, have you read the Ferranti uh, novels about the, the, uh, the ne- Neapolitan? I project? have read them all. I loved them. I lived them and loved them. And, and I just thought they were fantastic. So Eleanor Ferranti, My Brilliant Friend, etc. I read them up to back, but back to back and um, they were just Unbelievable. Brilliant. And the other thing, which is maybe if people are interested, Dadland, D-A-D-L-A-N-D, Dadland by Kitty Carew. Fantastic. It's a memoir of her father and he's he, he developing Alzheimer's and she builds both back backwards and forwards, you know, across time. It's a really superb read. I, I love that. Could we talk briefly about the Cochrane collaboration? No doubt you're a long-time observer of the Cochrane collaboration. The first Cochrane Centre in the world was in Oxford, not far from where you live. What's, what's your take on the Cochrane collaboration? I love the idea as an Australian, Ray. You think Oxford... I live in Cambridge, of course, which is miles away and completely... <laughs> a stone's throw. A stone's throw. Um, I've been a great fan of the Cochrane collaboration from the outset. I attended, I think it may have been a second meeting in Hamilton in 1994 when I was in America for a year. Uh, I went to America to study this thing of getting research into practice um, back in back in the 90s and Cochrane was the sort of shining light of, of, of trying to pull what we knew about medicine together in a, in a, in a sensible, systematic and, and critical way. And I think it's been an extraordinary um, innova- intervention, if you like, in healthcare. And the people involved, I think, are exceptional. I've met some really wonderful people who are now my great friends and collaborators on a number of things. Um, so I think it's been a, a really important uh, contribution and it faces all sorts of problems in terms of scale, quality, uh, um, feasibility of you know continuing funding, all of those things. Um, but I, I think it's a thing we need, and we should all give it our support.
why is it relevant to listeners? What, why would listeners uh, care or be interested in, in the Cochrane collaboration? I mean, how, how, how important are those Cochrane reviews that come out to, to, the, to the decisions that, that all of us are making about our, about our health and the health of our loved ones? So I think it's important both in, in, in the reviews it produces and in what it represents. So the reviews themselves pull together uh, what we know about a topic in a very systematic and critical way. And they, they, they lay that out in a way that not only can come up with an answer, does this treatment work or not, does it cause harm or not, uh, but also can help to guide future research because it can show the holes in the evidence or, or, the, or the problems of the research base so far, you know, what was done well, what was done badly in terms of the research itself. Uh, it also, as I've, as I've referred to, has been a huge influence on this whole business about transparency, access to the data. Um, at the moment, most Cochrane reviews rely on data that are already um, available. Uh, I'm hoping that somehow or other we'll move to a situation where the data themselves will be much more available and we can do a much much more intensive scrutiny on, on, on key treatments, which currently isn't the case. So I think Cochrane is also a movement in the true sense of the word in that it is actually changing the culture around it, already has changed the culture. And and the BMJ sees itself as 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 a as a as a intervention in, in some cases to change the culture of medicine for the better. And, and I think Cochrane and the BMJ are therefore sort of natural partners in that journey. One of my frustrations with the BMJ is that it publishes such fantastic material, particularly, let's say, about the, the harms of medical treatments or this issue of conflicts of interest, but it's so inaccessible to the lay public. Um, things are either behind a paywall or they're not written in ways that, that, that all of us can understand. Is, is there any sense in which you can make uh, make the BMJ's output more accessible? I mean, have you considered a, a BMJ for the public, for example? Well, we have considered it, Ray, and um, and at the moment, anyway, we haven't been able to find a, a way to make that work in terms of finances and, and how would we how would it pay for itself, if that makes sense. Uh, but we are continuing to explore that, and an idea has just emerged, which I'm busy discussing with others, about how we could maybe make that work online, um, you know, with some sort of more lay... Um, uh, lay um, explanations of what's in the journal and also more broadly. Um, but we're very clear that at the moment the BMJ is is for health professionals, doctors mainly, uh, and we, we, we work more to try to bring the patient voice into that so that we're, we're trying to kind of help doctors understand the patient perspective. But it's still very much um, for health professionals to improve what they do rather than uh, for the public. I think I'm right in saying that one of the big pushes at the moment within the BMJ, and it's something that I think is very close to your heart, is is to try and start to change the system, the healthcare system, to engage patients and the public, citizens, much more in the design of research, the way in which healthcare operates. I mean, can you talk a bit about that and, and why you're pursuing that? Yes, it, it has become a big theme across the journal. And, and I have to give huge credit to Tessa Richards, one of our long-standing editors who herself has been a patient and carer and is a, is, a, is a GP and physician trained. So she's incredibly experienced, has taken this movement within the BMJ, developed a fantastic international group of patient advisors. We've got patient editors. Uh, sadly, our, our patient editor, Rosamond Snow, um, died early this year and, and uh, was already doing fantastic work in this area um, so we're, we're, we're building up um, a, a lot of uh, 
ways of trying to encourage people to involve patients in, in the research agenda and the doing of research and in the interpretation of the research and also in, in the delivery and design of healthcare. Um, and this gets back to this idea of what can we, the BMJ, do apart from sort of badgering other people to do things better. Uh, and obviously um, that, that, that to me is, is a hugely important thing to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So we've, we've introduced patient peer reviewers to our research papers. We've got patient co-authors of... Um, uh, educational material. We have a section in every article saying how were patients involved in the in the in the development of this article. Very often with research, the answer is not at all, and that that I think is something we're trying to raise awareness about because it, it's just not it just seems not okay, you know, not to have patients involved. Um, but partly as a result, I hope of this campaign, but but because of cultural change anyway, the, um, there is already big shifts happening, and I think we are we will see quite a lot of change over the next few years. In terms of looking forward to the future, the, the, the world as we know it just seems to be shifting under our feet ever more rapidly daily. Silicon Valley appears to be taking over more and more of our lives. Um, media organisations that have been around forever are, are withering on the vine. Is, is the future of the BMJ, is the future of medical publishing also uh, under pressure from, from the dramatic changes that are happening in, in information technology and the marketplace? Uh, are you immune from that? I don't think we're immune from it. We've been protected from it, I think, because uh, to some extent there's a kind of must-have quality to medical journals because of the need for people to publish their research and because of um, the need for doctors to sort of be educated and, and to learn. I think that will change. Open access is already changing it. I think uh, my prediction or even my hope is that at some point uh, research won't be published in journals. I think it's not the place research should be published. I think research should be published on open access databases and journals should become the the, um, the secondary kind of review function of, of saying which research is, is worth looking at for which particular audience. Um, so, I, I mean, that's been something that's been talked about for quite a few years now and, and doesn't seem to be any nearer because the publishing industry, you know, it works quite well, the current system for, for the publishers as well as for uh, other groups. So I don't know what will be the, the, the sort of disruptive force that will bring that change about, but that seems to me to be where the future should lie. Um, and as for uh, the, the sort of educational function of journals, I think people will increasingly, as they're, as they're overwhelmed with torrents of information, will look to people, certain groups, trusted voices, to help them navigate through, um, through the morass of information. And if journals um, want to survive, they're going to have to serve that need um, very directly uh, in a whole host of different ways. It will be digital, it will be mobile, um, it will be, um, you know, data-driven, um, and, and, and I think it will have to increasingly speak to the public as well as the, the professions. Fiona Godley, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you very much for talking with us on this podcast. Thank you, Ray. Great pleasure. That was Dr Fiona Godley, Talking to the Recommended Dose, a podcast funded by Cochrane Australia. Production by Shauna Hurley and edited with assistance from Ben Griggs. If you enjoyed it, please recommend the dose to others and watch out for more episodes coming soon. Listener.